And care is a profoundly human activity, very adjacent uh, to love, right? And so this language of business processing needs to go away. We need to fundamentally change the language uh, of healthcare, shifting the business language to the back office and bring to the strategy, to the boardroom, to the policy room, the language of care. Welcome to another episode of Design Lab. I'm Bon Q. My guests today are Maggie Breslin and Victor Montori. Maggie is the director of the Patient Revolution. It's an action and advocacy movement for careful and kind care. She and her team work towards a vision of healthcare future defined by unhurried conversations, seeing people in all their complexity, and care plans that make intellectual, emotional, and practical sense. Maggie is a designer and researcher in the healthcare space. She has developed communication tools and programs that foster conversations in exam rooms, hospital rooms, homes, and public spaces about our lives and our health. She teaches in the Design for Social Innovation program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Victor Montori is a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. There he works in the Kerr unit to advance person-centered care for patients with diabetes and other chronic conditions. Victor is an endocrinologist, a health services researcher, and a care activist. He's published around 700 peer-reviewed publications and is among the most cited researchers in clinical medicine and social science. He is a recognized expert in evidence-based medicine, shared decision-making, and minimally disruptive medicine. He's the author of the book, Why We Revolt. It's so good, I've been reading it this week. And he and Maggie are leading a movement called the Patient Revolution. We appreciate everyone who has reached out to us via social media. Moshi Beiser, Enionem Udum, Paige Turner, and Nick Bide. Sorry if I mispronounce your names. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast. Download episodes. Rate us. Give us comments. We read them all. Okay, let's jump into our conversation. Please enjoy Maggie and Victor. Maggie and Victor, welcome to Design Lab. Let's jump right into this. How does the current industrial healthcare system dehumanize us? Well, that's uh, that's there's no warm up question, eh? Uh, so, <laughs> so first of all, I think it's uh, helpful to look at words, right? So, industrial healthcare for us is the state of what uh, where healthcare is at at the moment, where patients come through and the system literally processes them, rather. And each person becomes a blur, either because they're represented by a test result or they're represented by a, a statistic, and they or they're going, simply going too fast, you know, through through the consultation. Clinicians fail to appreciate their real situation, their situation in high definition, and fail to co-create with patients a plan of care that makes intellectual, emotional, and practical sense to them. So the absence of all that is a processing of patients that we are calling industrial healthcare, and. And of course, it dehumanizes both the patient and the clinician, because care, like love, is something that only people can do, and only people can do when they share a time, a space, a conversation, a, a vulnerability, an openness, where when they, the caregiver shows up with the intention to care, to notice what the situation is that requires action, and then to formulate a plan of action to make that person's situation better. All of that 
cannot occur in the context of simply processing people focused on efficiency. It has to be done in a way that, uh, that uh, is, is in, in the way in which humans have evolved to interact, which is through moments of connection. Moments of connection, there are too inefficient for industrial healthcare to take place. It reminds me of the whole big food industrial complex of fast food, processed food, and what, what you both are doing is raising up this slow food movement and bringing us back to a better cooking, better eating, better a healthier lifestyle. Yeah, there is actually a slow medicine movement that is linked to the slow food movement, particularly in Italy. It made it to the United States through Dr. Sweet, you know, the, who wrote the God's Hotel and then Slow Medicine. And and it has some, you know, elements that are in fact quite similar to the slow. But this is, you know, and that, that might be one way forward. I think our position is less about slowness and deliberate connection and so forth, and, and rather more about defining what healthcare ought to be when it comes to, when it comes to, you know, in responding to people's situation. And yeah, it probably requires it to, to slow down, but we speak of it as being elegant. So no mm. waste, but also no haste. So Victor, you're a physician, you're an endocrinologist, but Maggie, you are a designer. And I'm curious to know, how did you both start working together and start this movement called the patient revolution? And also, can you define for our listeners what exactly is the patient revolution? Yeah. So Victor and I started working together about 15 or so years ago. The Mayo Clinic in 2004, 2005 decided to start an innovation program, and they were interested in hiring designers to be part of that effort. It's kind of a, a new experiment. And I came on and our other colleague within Patient Revolution, Matt Maleska, he and I kind of came on as the first designers in this kind of small group of eight people, two other project managers, and then our operations person, Ryan Armbruster and Alan Duncan, who is our medical director. And Victor came on as our director of research. And so we were this little team of eight kind of figuring out what does it mean to do innovation and to kind of advance the cause of innovation within a big healthcare system. And we started collaborating. Victor was very interested or was kind of building a research group that was focused at that moment on kind of shared decision-making. We he saw an opportunity to kind of collaborate. I remember we went for lunch and talked about making a decision tool to help uh, people with type two diabetes participate in the decision-making around their medications. And then over time, we just really found that we aligned in our kind of spirit and values of what this work could mean. That early work on that first decision tool really taught us that the outcome of uh, good shared decision-making was a meaningful conversation, something that was unique to this clinician and this patient, but meaningful to their situation and therefore capable of kind of helping advance the care plan. 
And really everything that we've done for the last 15 years has kind of been building on that key insight, trying to stretch it further from the visit to the, <laughs> the department, to the, to the hospital, to the clinic, you know, it's always about how do we bring that, what, how can we create the environment and the capacity for clinicians and patients to be able to achieve that kind of connection. This whole concept of designers working with physicians, you were doing, you were light years ahead of anyone. And so it was so inspiring to me, Victor, what was like that for you as a physician to work with designers? Are you trained as a designer? Was this like, seem natural? Was this a learning uh, experience for you? It was very natural, actually. And I would say that it's one of our colleagues, Ellen Duncan, who is a medical director, pointed this out to me early on as I joined, which was there's enormous parallel between the work of a clinician and uh, the work of a designer. And mm. Ian Hargraves, who is now the lead designer for my research group at Mayo Clinic, actually did his PhD design dissertation on the connections between design and care and has been very influential in my language. And it's this, it, it, he uses a, an old myth of care, who is this uh, goddess that fashions out of earth, mm. out of mud, fashions a human being. And, uh, and then there's a debate between the gods as to who this human being belongs to. And uh, I need to get all my gods in place here, but I think, <laughs> I think Saturn shows up and says, you know, he's going to give the, the, the final word. And he says, well, you know, the mud came from the earth. The spirit came from the heavens. The life came from somewhere. But the, the god that fashioned it, which was Care or Kara, is now the one that needs to take care of it. And then when the human dies, it will go back to earth. You know, it will go back to, go back to the earth. And so this idea that the, the fashioner and the caregiver is one and the same is, is a point of mythological connection between medicine and design. And then as a, as an, as a researcher, which is the, the, the function in which I came into the mm -hmm. innovation program, as a researcher, I valued the notion of gathering insight and input from the people who were going to be the end users of mm. what is, is it that's being developed. And to do so in the context in which it, the, what is being developed will be used. See, all of that seemed to make a lot more sense than what I was used to, which is a bunch of smart people in a room, completely detached from reality, mm -hmm. come up with this beautiful thing <laughs> that it, it, it satisfies all the criteria that somebody else came up with. You can check all the boxes, you put it in front of people, and then the only research paper you can write after you put it out there is how the users are a barrier to the adoption of your wonderful <laughs> innovation, right? And, and I think blaming the users aka blaming the patients for not complying with the amazing treatment and intervention plans that we came up with that's exactly right and so and i i was coming in from shared decision making which is you know this idea of helping helping patients and clinicians develop plans of care together and that's a field in which we had you know tens or hundreds of tools that were supposed to help but nobody was using so it was like mm. perfect and then in comes Maggie and, and Matt Maleska, who is the other designer in our group. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's because they haven't really designed it. And let's do it together. Like, boop, you know, eyes come up. And this is phenomenal. And uh, it shaped, initially shaped my research career in a substantial way. 
and now of course is uh, shaping my this next phase of my contribution, which is you know which is I'm embarked together with Maggie on, which is the patient revolution. Mm-hmm. Maggie, what was it like working with a bunch of physicians? Because most physicians aren't like Victor. You know, I think we're we have little tolerance for ambiguity. We don't really know how to design with end users, with patients. And was it, what were maybe some of the struggles working with physicians or was this an opportunity where it's like, oh, it totally makes sense. It was easy. Definitely. In some ways it was easy. I think that there is, as Victor kind of noted, a a similarity between designers and physicians or clinicians in general in the sense that their work is a practice, Mm -hmm. uh, that it is something that you do as a way of kind of of making it happen. It was enormously valuable to be embedded within a healthcare institution. I think the ability to build relationships over time with clinicians was very key and helping them see what it was I could do and what it was that the discipline of design could bring to the table. I think that was really critical. I also think that I've said that I think physicians are and clinicians sometimes in general are a um, terrible group of people to ask what they think about something because (laughs) their whole professional training is about coming up with responses in the absence of certainty. And so they will convey in, you know, enormously confident tones why this won't work or will work or is, you know, deeply you know, deeply kind of tragic. Okay. You know, we have a God complex, of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah. So, you know, the ability to get them to use things and then observe and being that, that way of kind of gathering feedback is really critical. I think in medicine, I remember we had one project when I was at Mayo where we were trying to design a new exam room space and we, we, this project kind of iterated over, you can imagine trying to change the facilities design of a 120 year old organization was a big ask. And so this project had, you know, kind of crept along over years. And we finally had, we had presented this idea of what we kind of called Jack and Jill rooms, which were took the layout of like two exam rooms and split it into three two kind of smaller consultation spaces. And then they would share an exam room in the, in the middle. And we were really excited about it. There was a lot of interest. We built out a version of it. Facilities built out a version in a makeshift space that all of these clinicians could come to and and look at and, and check out. And one of the physicians who came to one of those tours said, this isn't going to work because you're going to be able to hear the conversations. If someone's in the exam room, you're going to be able to hear in the consultation room because they had interior doors. Mm -hmm. And luckily we had access to this space that was, we were allowed to go and make changes to. And so our coordinators who were amazing made a plan that night we had built to, to cut interior doors in exam rooms in our lab space and we invited the physicians to come and do their consults there. And we found that you couldn't hear. And so that saved the project, like that ability to do that, because I always point to that. That's a classic moment in bureaucratic, institutional sort of decision-making where that one line comment would have thrown mm-hmm. the, the baby out with the bathwater. The whole idea kind of would have would have been gone. And so I think that ability to build relationships, to have access to resources, to be able to create spaces where we ask them to try things out, which they're enormously 
giving of their time. And I found most of the physicians and the patients that I've always worked with are willing to be observed, willing to ask questions, willing to try new things. So in that way, it's a great space to kind of work in healthcare. But I have found that piece is really important rather than just asking what their opinion is, because I find that's problematic and challenging. (laughs) Well, this week I've been devouring the book, Why We Revolt. Thank you, Victor, for sending that to me. It's like the uh, manifesto for the uh, patient revolution. And I want to just read a quote from the book that really resonated with me. Cruelty seems to require that we as clinicians dehumanize patients and consider them not like us, not like our own kin. And that really resonated with me because during medical training, I felt like I was getting dehumanized myself and dehumanizing the patients who are at my bedside. And I've had a lot of years trying to deprogram myself from the industrial complex that has made and created me. I was wondering, Victor, why did you decide to write this manifesto? Well, so, so just to make a couple of points, the, the dehumanization, I don't think it is necessarily a hallmark of the complex, the industrial complex manifestation of healthcare in the United States. One of the things that I didn't know when I was writing the book, I had an intuition, which I'll make evident in a second, but it's now become clear since the book has come out and where it, people are reading it and so forth, that what I'm describing in the book is a final common pathway by which care becomes you know, distorted, corrupted by the lack of resources placed at the point of care. So in the United States, it is the result of people extracting at every opportunity, extracting resources out of care in the form of profit taking. Mm. In Europe or in Canada, it's the result of political decision-making that decides to underinvest in healthcare. So policies of austerity have put decreasing amounts of resources in healthcare. And so the final common pathway at the end is this, you know, processing and depersonalization. And in my country of Peru, and which I describe in the book, this is the mm-hmm. intuition I was describing at the beginning, you can't, you, you barely can describe healthcare as an industrial complex because it doesn't amount to a complex, right? It's a hodgepodge of, you know, mm-hmm. things that have evolved in a haphazard way. And in the public system where I trained, the sheer volume of patients coming in, you talk, you know, emergency room doc. So you, the sheer volume of people showing up at your emergency room during your shift yep. to bother you makes the, the person coming in the enemy. Somebody you had to, you know, get pushed out of your emergency room or into your hospital, but needs to get out of your way. Mm-hmm. And it becomes an adversary. It becomes someone to fight against. It, it becomes, and I, the book starts with a, with a scene in which one of my colleagues is trying to suture a patient and the patient becomes quite violent and starts, you know, throwing the little jars of f- different colored fluids that are used to clean things in the emergency department in Peru. Start, these things start flying and then the response from the colleagues is not just to restrain the patient, but to beat the patient up, mm-hmm. you know, clearly the enemy. And so uh, this, this extreme dehumanization of the person extends also into what we're seeing now, and it was clear there in Peru as well, into the fact that some of 
our clinicians and our patients come from different socioeconomic uh, strata. They come from different educational backgrounds. They come from different racial and ethnic backgrounds. So there are a number of reasons. They, they, behave, they behave in ways that we might consider unhealthy. So we find reasons to think that this other person that we are called to care for is so dramatically different from us that we really can't relate. And we get to talk down to them or, or treat them as uh, subhuman. And, and, and this is the final common pathway of when you ask people to care and they show up to care and, and the conditions are simply not there to be able to appreciate that the person in front of you is also you. And, um, and, and you, you other the person, you, you make it somewhat, you know, part of another group. And after that, the possibility of human connection disappears. And you made some points in the book that we do on a daily basis that physicians label patients not as humans, but by their disease, you know, we call them the asthmatic, the sickle celler, the diabetic, and not the patient with diabetes or with COPD. And I'm curious to know how, it, how are you both, you know, redesigning that kind of, how are you both redesigning that relationship between physicians and their patients? I can start and, and Maggie will do it better, but it's complicated, right? We're talking about substantial cultural, administrative, political changes here. And it's a multidimensional and it's probably going to be a multi-generational project. Mm. I, I speak of the book of building cathedrals and how, mm. you know, you got to get going, you got to get started. It will take several generations, perhaps by the time the cathedral is finally built, the initial people that set it up drew up the plans and found the land and propped it up will no longer be there. Perhaps not even their kids will be there anymore. And so I think the sooner we start, the better, but this probably will be a long-term project. There are cultural issues. I mean, we have people that join training in healthcare professions who join in for the right reasons, with the right heart, with the right approach. And then they are desperately trying to fit in. Mm. And then what we offer them as models for them to fit in are people who have now learned to process patients and, and exhibit all these uh, all these behaviors that we talked about, which are fundamentally cruel, because the system is cruel to them. The system mm. is cruel to clinicians, and and COVID has demonstrated that you know repeatedly by throwing people to care without any protection and and, yeah. and so and so forth. And then that cruelty gets turned around and shown to the trainees as, as the way you handle the situation to survive uh, your shift and to survive your, your care plan. So there's a training component that needs to be reformed. There is a, a set of values in healthcare that need to be upset. Right now, many enlightened healthcare organizations are pursuing value over volume. Mm-hmm. I mean, neither of those two words reflect, is, uh, is think about love. I mean, to me, the, the proof is in words, right? If you were not to talk about health care, but if mm-hmm. you were talking about care, and if that's difficult, if you were talking about love and you were saying, well, we need to optimize the, the, uh, the volume of love or the uh, value <laughs> of love, you know, you know I, it's, it's the, your inner poet should actually get really upset about this, right? That it makes absolutely no sense. And care is a profoundly human activity, very adjacent uh, to love, right? And so this language of business processing needs to go away. We need to fundamentally change the language uh, of healthcare, shifting the business language to the back office, 
and bringing to the strategy, to the strategy, to the boardroom, to the policy room, the language of care. I think we will make dramatically different decisions if we can fundamentally change the language and, and, and stop talking about healthcare as an industry and of your healthcare as its product. It's time to talk about how do we create situations at a large scale? I mean, that's a difficult challenge. How do we create situations of deep human connection when those are necessary, of efficiency and speed when that's the, what it's called for, and of the ability of making time become dense and slow so that the tempo of care mm -hmm. can be set in place for people to be noticed and for the response to be sensible. You're speaking to my soul of bringing in these like abstract ideas of love into healthcare. That seems so obvious, but at the same time, so foreign to me. I'm thinking, is that even possible? Like, how are you all doing that? Well, so, so I just want to say quickly that when I talk about love in, in conference room filled with my colleagues, there's a palpable, <laughs> you know, there's a palpable discomfort. Yeah. And I, and I always stop and label it, right? I say like, hey, some people are getting uncomfortable here. I'm talking about love. How come you don't get uncomfortable when we talk about profit? And, uh, and there's always a nervous laughter that follows, you know, that, that comment. But I think it, it's, it, and then I basically label that as saying, you know, this is how far off we are from the mark. Wow. I think to build on that the kind of role of the design plays in this has been that realization, what do we need to do to create environments in which love and care can flourish? That's really what design can bring to the table. And one of the first things I recognized when I started working in healthcare was to realize how much uh, the spaces where healthcare happens have so much history and ritual in them. Mm -hmm. And we were starting to work on these shared decision-making tools. So the goal was to kind of create a tool that might allow a patient to participate in shared decision-making. And part of the reason why you needed a tool was because the rituals of those spaces are so strong that mm. even people with the highest intention, like who are like, I'm going to walk into this room and I'm going to, I want, I'm going to make my, my ideas known, get in there. They sit in a space where it's clear what the power dynamic is. It's clear what the kind of priority for that uh, space is clears whose time's most important. You've potentially waited a long time or waiting in the room until the physician kind of comes and sits uh, sits in their chair. As Victor's research has showed, uh, you'll start telling your story. They're very likely to interrupt you within 11 seconds um, of you starting to tell what you're doing. And so even if you're like, I'm going to do this, I'm empowered, I'm the person, how, how could, you know, there's just no support or anything in that environment that would really make it possible um, for people to, to kind of participate. So early on with our shared decision-making tools, it was about, can we create a, really the thing that we looked for um, in the development process was, can we get the patient to tell the physician something that they otherwise weren't in these visits? And it might be, you know, we had one instance where it was a patient with type 2 diabetes who shared that 
they were a um, surgical nurse. And so they got real hypoglycemia was a real big concern for them. And so then suddenly issues of low blood sugar became part of the conversation and deciding what medications they would be on. Or another woman I remember who shared that she had her son's uh, wedding that was coming up and she really wanted to lose weight for the wedding. And so she, a physician made the decision that she was going to try this diet for the next couple of months. But if that didn't work, she was going to reach back out to the physician and they had, you know, an agreement to try this other medication that might be able to kind of help with, to help with weight loss. And so the thing that I always take from that is you could never have predicted that's what needed to kind of come out. But what our tool did is it shared information in a way that made it possible for the patient to feel comfortable, gave them permission to kind of share that type of information. And I think that's really been the building block for everything we're trying to do in the patient revolution. So we started out with these tools. I always try and remind people, especially sort of designers, I'm very proud of our tools, but our tools have no power. The only thing they do is they allow these other people to come together and connect. And as those people get better at doing that, they're not going to need our tools, which is fine. They kind of go away. But right now where no one has a model for what happens in these types mm -hmm. of situations, that's where tools and design can help. So first you think about the tools to support conversation. And then, you know, really the patient revolution has been an outgrowth of, okay, well, now we need to control. We also need to think about the space that's supporting it. Okay, well, now we also need to think about the scheduling and how is that happening? And how is the physician sort of, you know, that kind of piece playing? And how is this happening longitudinally? Can we stop thinking about one visit just all by itself? But what's the relationship these people are building over time? And how is it screw things up when one time they come in and they get to see one physician and then the next time they come in and they see a different physician and the next time a different physician? And how does it work when they need to coordinate with kind of other physicians? And that's really where the idea of the patient revolution clinic, which we're trying to pursue now, grew out of because we realized that if we really want to create an environment that is supporting and fostering connection and conversation and uh, love between clinicians and patients, we need to control every single one of those factors and make them point towards the possibility of that happening. And that's, I think that's what design, that's what I think of myself as a designer is bringing to the table is to really think about all of those pieces. How do they create this space for possibility? Mm -hmm. But what's weird and strange for, if, see, see Maggie, if I got the, the design gig down here, what's weird is that designers are particularly wonderful when you have the constraints of the work clearly defined. And most people that are launching into, okay, let's develop a, a clinic, will start with what the the setup, the system, the context is telling them a clinic is and should be. And then they try to design humanity into it. And what we're, what we're saying is, no, 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 no. That context is what we need to change. So we're going to design something that is challenging that context. We're going to design a demonstration clinic that asks the question, can, you know, can you context change to accommodate this? rather than look at how well we have adapted to the, you know, sorry state of affairs and try to squeeze care out of it. You know, how smart are we? Instead of saying that, we're going to say, no, this is what care should be. And you're not doing this. Why are you not doing this? Do this mm -hmm. and, uh, and show it to 
patients and, and show them advocacy and say, okay, how do you get, how are you going to try to get your hospital, your clinic to do this? And we're, we're going to bring clinicians through and say, you know, you work, you're burned out, not because you lack resilience, you're burned out because you're being asked to work in terrible situations or terrible context. You're not allowed to care. You're not enabled to care. You're not supported in your care. This is what that should look like. Remember, now go back and fight for it, right? And so we're going to help people become advocates in their own workplace. So, you know, doctors, patients, pharmacists, therapists, you know, come back and do it. We're going to bring administrators and, and leaders and managers and go like, what does it take to create an environment that actually is able to care? And how do I shape my administrative approach, my leadership approach to actually create that? We, we just wrote a paper that has a line that is such a silly line. It says the key thing that leaders in healthcare need to uh, uh, do is to assert that their organization's primary goal is to care. <laughs> it's like, yes, right? But that's- So basic. And yes. quite fundamental. Yes. And so this, this, uh, the next step for the patient revolution is to create this, this global, because I told you the problem is in every healthcare system, this global network of demonstration clinics that serve as the most, the, you know, annoying mosquito for the healthcare system is that, you know, constantly reminding them that, that, Hey, that whatever you're doing, that, that ain't care. And this is what care should look like and feel like. And, and we're going to bring you through and you're going to go back and you're going to try to make that happen. And while you're doing that, you will know that you're not alone, that you are actually with other people that are in the same journey. Can you tell me about this patient revolution clinic more? Is it a physical space that is going, you're going to see patients in? How can, if you're a physician or a designer, how can you get involved? And is this something that if this resonates with you, how can a listener support that? Yes. So the Patient Revolution Clinic, as Victor mentioned, is a demonstration clinic that has grown out of our realization that we're just not going to be successful trying to convince industrial healthcare to pivot towards careful and kind care in little bits and pieces and kind of increments. We've finally recognized that we needed our own sandbox where we could change everything and reorient it towards this idea of careful and kind care and a connection between clinicians and patients. And so we are looking to build a space where we can, we do see patients. It'll be a, a small demonstration clinic. It's not necessarily about growth, but it is about partnering with uh, patients and having care happen in this space. And as part of that, creating ways for healthcare professionals, clinicians, healthcare organizations, patients, patient groups, community groups to come participate, observe, be able to see what careful and kind care looks like. That's been a, you know, a huge stumbling block for us is that we haven't been able to really point to anything and say, hey, this is what it is. And so our idea is to create that, allow others to kind of come and see it, and then carry those seeds, as Victor mentioned, back to uh, their own practices, their own communities, and to use that as a way to say, hey, you've got to change. This, this is, they figured out how to do it over here, so we have to start to move towards something else. And that's our idea about how careful and kind care kind of spreads, spreads more broadly. Uh, and how we affect uh, large-scale global change around healthcare with a, with a small starter demonstration clinic that becomes a hub for these ideas and a place where people who are excited and interested in this can find their community, 
and come up with strategies um, for how we actually make this exist in the world. And if somebody wants to help us today, I think there are a couple of ways of participating. One is if you go to our website, patientrevolution.org, you will see that there is a section on not just why we revolt, like the book, but also how we revolt. And in the how we revolt section, you'll see a number of activities that we're doing where the patient revolution demonstration clinic is our our main focus at the moment. So yes, you can donate and support us to make sure that we can turn that into reality. We have a fellowship, a patient revolution fellowship that is a multidisciplinary group. You can see the list of current fellows there. And you might, you know, if somebody's interested, you might apply to become one of our patient revolution fellows. And that is roll up your sleeve voluntary work to actually shape what the patient revolution clinic is going to feel like and, and, and what is it going to be able to accomplish and so forth. So that's another way in which you can support us. And then, I think the final way is to hold us accountable. So many groups start up with big, big dreams and, you know, big, and then they get, they get themselves corrupted in the process of adapting to the situation in which they have to, they have to do this. And, you know, here we are trying to start a demonstration clinic, not to take a slice of the pie, you know, we're going to do telehealth or we're going to do elderly people. We're going to do homeless people. We're going to do black people. Are we going to do, you know, uh, home care? And, and so, no, we're trying to change the pie. And so if we are not doing that, if we get distracted along the way, I would like your listeners to say, well, when, when are you guys going to change healthcare? You know, what, what are you doing over there? And, and make sure that we, you know, keep us, this is going to be a long, long journey. We probably will continue past uh, Maggie's and, and my time. But if we, if we don't do this, we are going to end up in a situation very similar to the one we are at right now with social media and, and this big tech, you know, which is a surveillance machine that limits our freedom and uh, distorts our political process and undermines our democracy. How, how do we let that do that? Well, healthcare, I think, is going in a similar direction where it's no longer going to be recognized as a way of enhancing our human flourishing, but just as another industrial process by, by which people are making, deriving personal profit and personal benefit rather than supporting and helping each other based on greed more than solidarity. Mm -hmm. we got to change that. And I think the time to start that is now. So join us, support us, and hold us accountable are the three things that people can do as we start this journey. I, I love that. I could talk with you all day, but we're wrapping up our time. I, have, I want two final questions. You know, this, this vision of humanizing healthcare seems so utopian and how do you respond to criticism of is this possible and like you know for those listeners who are physicians and like myself i was working in the emergency room um, a couple of nights ago it was so busy patients with covid i want to do shared decision making but i'm like you know what it's so much easier to go you need to stay in the hospital so you're going to stay and i interrupt patients probably in four seconds because the volume is so busy and this almost seems too good to be true. Like, I was like, is this like a pipe dream? You know, how do you respond to people who are working in the system right now saying, I want this, but the system seems designed to fail? Like, how, how could this even be possible? I don't know about you, Bon, but I, I, you know, I look back at history and I see these incredible movements of people that are now so inspiring to us, that achieve incredible things. And I, I wondered, what were they thinking? You know, were they thinking it was feasible, possible? Let's just do it on Sunday because we'll get it by Monday. We'll have it done. Or they also were 
completely submerged by uncertainty and insecurity and imposter syndrome and, you know, why me, why us, why now? And of course, you know, the, the answer to those questions is <laughs> because, right? It's, uh, it gives meaning to our life and, uh, and it's, it's what the situation calls for. But we are in a very special time. I mean, first of all, we're all survivors of one of the worst pandemics in human history. We have to recognize that this is not normal times. We're also living through an accelerated course in, in history with, you know, all sorts of challenges to democracy and fascism and global warming and all these challenges. Everything is happening at the same time. It's a difficult time. And but in that time, we've seen there's been a little window that has opened and has shown us all at the same time what we're capable of as a humanity, right? The reason why people are not wearing masks or not keeping social distance and all these other things in response to the pandemic hasn't been news is because it's been deviant. What mm -hmm. most people have done is they stayed home. They've actually restrained their personal freedoms, limit their, their economic activities, stay away from other people, stay away from loved ones to just care for and about each other. They've demonstrated what we can do when we care for and about each other. That is not myth. That is not poetry. That's something we've all witnessed and we've ourselves participated in a huge community of solidarity. That is possible. And in healthcare, we've seen incredible efforts to care for and about people, even under the worst possible circumstances. The goals of our revolution have been made evident and have been realized under the worst possible conditions in front of our very eyes. We just cannot forget that. And if that's possible now, it is possible by design. And not just by response, but we can do it by design. Mm -hmm. That is, the hope is not, doesn't come from the, from the beautiful words. The hope comes from what we've been able to accomplish under the worst possible circumstances. And we've all seen it and we've all experienced it. This is possible. This is not poetry, but we just have to make sure it becomes reality. Yeah. And to build on that, I would say that even your comment about your experience in the emergency department, that you wanted to do shared decision-making, but it was too crowded. You couldn't do it. I have witnessed hundreds, if not thousands of interactions with clinicians and patients over the last 15 or so years. And the desire to come together and connect is so palpable that I see people continue to, to try and do it even as industrial healthcare stacks barrier on top of barrier on top of barrier on top of barrier. And so that's where my faith and hope comes from, that the, the reason why healthcare doesn't feel very caring right now is not because the people who are involved in it don't believe in caring or are not caring people. It's because they are trapped in a system that continually tells them, don't do that stop doing that. <laughs> we don't want you to do that. Right. And so that's where I really believe in my heart that if we can create a space that supports that, the human drive to care and be cared for is what is going to push all of those barriers down. But we have to let people see it. I think the problem is right now, patients can't see it. They really have no sense of agency in the system. And increasingly, clinicians sort of see themselves as just, well, I'm just a cog in this, you know, in this factory. I don't have any mm -hmm. power to change anything. Yeah. And so really what we're trying to do with the demonstration clinic is to show, show that something else is possible and then to use that to engage their humanity as a way of pushing back against the industrial healthcare system to, to force it to change. Final question. 
for listeners, do you have any practical advice of how we can bring care into healthcare during this pandemic? It's the most common question I get asked is, well, in the meantime, what can I do? And I, 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 that's where I get a little dark because I don't think that you can just get care for yourself if you just do the right thing, if you just mm-hmm. ask the right questions, if you can prepare for the consultation and so forth. And as a clinician, I tell in the book that I'm always running late uh, because I'm trying to give my patients time and I'm trying to be thoughtful and so forth. But those effort, unilateral efforts that I do then hurt the, the people that work with me who then have to go home late to their families and, and so forth. So um, I don't think it's time for heroics. I think there are ways of, of trying to extract care from healthcare at the moment, but that's not our, our gig. I think mm. what we need to do is to say, look, that's an, you know, label this. This is unacceptable. This is an, a really an unacceptable develop, human development. We mm. don't need this uh, kind of healthcare. We need something different. We need careful and kind care. And the way to get it, perhaps not for ourselves, perhaps not for our kids, perhaps for our kids' kids, is to start today to change the fundamental uh, values, principles, approaches that we're using to build it and build something different, build something that is capable of careful and kind care for everyone. And so, no, I'm not going to answer your question, what can we do tomorrow? <laughs> I think what you can do tomorrow is join us in, in, uh, in, in starting a patient mm-hmm. revolution. I would say essentially the same thing. I think that the system is so forceful right now that it's hard don't want to put patients in the position of imagining that they as individuals can force a lot of change within that system. I don't think that's fair to them. At the same time, I think one thing that they can do is is bring a different set of eyes and kind of lens to their interactions with healthcare right now. Mm. And one of the things that I think is so powerful about the book, Why We Revolt, is it introduces a different language for thinking and talking about healthcare industrial healthcare, the idea of cruelty, even accidental cruelty, Hmm. um, solidarity, love, greed, blur. And I think that engaging with those terms and even having patients and clinicians sort of look at their own experiences through that lens can allow them to kind of see see those experiences in a different way. And that may, I think that's a really powerful thing, just laying the groundwork for the, the kind of larger revolution that, that we want to see patients and clinicians lead. Yeah. Well, Victor and Maggie, thank you for injecting some hope straight into my veins this morning. I really strongly encourage listeners to, to buy the book, Why We Revolt, and, and to go to the patient revolution and, and support this cause. It's uh, one of the most inspiring movements that I've seen as a physician in my career. So I'm really honored to have you both on Design Lab. Thank you very much uh, for inviting us. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much, Bob. This was a joy. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Maggie and Victor. Check out their website, patientrevolution.org. You can also find Patient Revolution on Twitter at PatientRev and Victor Montori on Twitter at V-M-O-N-T-O-R-I. And if you haven't done so already, the best way to support us is by doing three simple things. Subscribe to this podcast, download episodes, and rate us. And you can also reach out to me on social media. I'm at Twitter, at Bonku, Instagram at Dr. Bonku, and send me an old-fashioned email, bon at designlabpod.com. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week. Music